Welcome to the Gas Street Podcast. Our vision as a church is to be light for the city. We really hope you enjoy this message. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to those online watching. Welcome to everyone gathered here at Gas Street. Um, I'm going to try not to swear like uh, Rach, but um, we are beginning a period of time as a church where we are looking at our vision and we call this season Above and Beyond. It's a moment for us to celebrate what God is doing, but uh, ask that He would continue to speak to us and lead us into all that He has for us. And when everyone leaves uh, this morning, you're going to be given um, this booklet, Above and Beyond, which basically shares all the things that God has been doing in the life of our church over the last year. Uh, stories of what God's doing amongst the international community, amongst young people, people getting baptized, testimonies of lives transformed. Uh, it's, it's such an encouraging thing to read. And this is only possible because of everyone here giving and serving and praying and being a part of this family and community. And so uh, we want to encourage people just to look, reflect, and for all of us to say, God, we're so grateful for what you're doing, but Lord, please, we long for more. We long for more. I want to look at a passage of Scripture in the book of Acts. It's Acts 11. Words are going to come up on the screen. And it's about God at work amongst the people uh, in Antioch. And so uh, let's read this together. Acts 11, starting at verse 19. Now, those who'd been scattered, someone's drawing their hands very thoroughly, it's good to see. Um, now, those who'd been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed. Stephen was one of the apostles who'd been recently martyred on account of his faith. They traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them. Hold on to that verse. The Lord's hand was with them. And a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. During this time, some prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. So Antioch was a Gentile, a Greek-speaking city. And this is the first time we see that the disciples, the early church, really going and sharing the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, to a non-Jewish community. And so this was uncharted territory. They were reaching an unreached people group. And this was a city where the ideology, the cultural practices, the ethics were completely separate, so far removed from the thinking of the Jewish people and now obviously the early church. But we're told as the apostles go that the Lord's hand was on them. The Lord's hand, its literal meaning is the power of God, the supernatural outworking of the Spirit of God is working in and through them amongst the people of Antioch. 
What we're seeing here is a supernatural, sovereign move of God's Spirit. It's like a hinge moment where the gospel suddenly breaks through and begins to shatter the expectations of the early church and the disciples. And everything that they thought was possible has now been shattered and they're realizing God can do immeasurably more. I believe we're at a hinge moment and my prayer for us is, God, would you break through, would you smash through and would you do immeasurably more than we could imagine? Would we see your gospel expand in this city and beyond in a way that we never dreamt possible? And we see this incredible moment where God's distinctive hand was on the early church in Antioch and we see a couple of key distinctives what it looked like for the Spirit of God to be working. Firstly, you see radical conversions. We read that a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Whenever God is at work in power, we should expect to see radical conversions. And what is getting me really excited at the moment is week after week after week, we are hearing stories and testimonies of lives being radically transformed by the power of Jesus Christ. God is doing something. Secondly, you see in Antioch a diverse community being shaped and formed. Antioch was an incredibly diverse city. And the apostles, the early church, worked really hard, really intentionally to build and curate a diverse leadership team to better reach that city. We see in Acts 13 that uh, something of the leadership structures in Antioch, there were five key leaders from three separate continents representing four different nations. And so this diverse leadership team was able to reach a diverse community. And actually the church began to pull together a unified, beautiful community of all these different races and cultures, nations and backgrounds. And as we've been looking at this series, Better Together, when God is at work, a sign of the church is when we gather together in our differences, but we're united by the presence of Jesus Christ. And it's a prophetic voice to the world, which is so divided and pulled apart, so set on our own ways. But it's in Christ that we come together and we say we are one. We are part of something so much bigger than ourselves. You see a diverse community. But thirdly, and this is what I want to dig in a bit to this morning, we see unprecedented generosity. Unprecedented generosity. We see this prophet arrive and he begins to share this vision he's had of a severe famine sweeping throughout Rome. And what happens spontaneously, it's remarkable that the early church, the disciples that are gathered there, they just naturally, in response to this prophetic insight, they give financially. In advance of the famine, they give to their brothers and sisters in Judea who are going to be hit most hard by this famine. It says the disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters in Judea. Amazing. I mean, no sense of you have to give, no sense of force or manipulation. It was a gut, spirit response because the spirit was moving so profoundly in and through them that the natural heart cry was, we need to give. And each, as they were able, gave. 
If you look through some of the history of the early church, you see that radical generosity was a key distinctive. In fact, many historians think a huge reason for a lot of the growth was because their generosity was so profound and countercultural. In a, a letter written uh, about 30 years after the death of the last living apostle, John, an atheist, he writes and he shows the impact of the way that the early church lived. It says this, they love everyone, but are persecuted by all. They are poor and make many rich. They're sure of everything and yet they have plenty of everything. They are treated outrageously, but behave respectfully. They are mocked and blessed in return. When they do good, they are attacked. When they are attacked, they rejoice as if being given new life. I love that, that they're short of everything. They're poor because they keep giving it away. They can't give it away quick enough. And yet they were full of joy. They were content. And the people of the time looked at them and thought, what is it about you that lives like this? No one else could match the beauty of their living. The author, Tim Keller, writes this. He says of the early church, that the early church was strikingly different from the culture around it. In this way, the pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave nobody their money and practically gave everybody their body. And the Christians came along and they gave practically nobody their body and gave everybody their money. The early church, they, they pursued this lifestyle of um, purity in terms of sexual ethic and their sexuality and their expression of that. And, and something we want to look more at as a church, what it means to be sexually pure. But also, they were just lavishly, radically generous with their giving. I love what John Tyson, he describes the early church as financially promiscuous. <laughs> I, I wish they, they'd say of us, oh wow, they're financially promiscuous, just so lavish with all that we have. And so if we're a church, to continue to lean into this move of God, I actually believe we're a part of already. One of the things I think God wants to continue to stretch in us is unprecedented generosity. As a church, you are phenomenally generous. We're so grateful, amazed to be in part of such a generous community, but it's a journey we're continuing to go on. And so why, why do we give? Why is giving important? Few things. You need to understand, when we give, giving is a way of being grateful to God for the past. It's a way of worshipping Him. Throughout the Bible, we see giving is essentially about worship. It's not about some tax or some duty. It's about worship. When we see, God, look at what you've done for me. Look at what you've given me. This breath in my lungs, this beautiful creation I get to enjoy, this salvation and life I have in you in response to that. How can I not give as an act of thanksgiving and worship? So we give as a way of being grateful to God for the past. But we also give as a way of putting God first in the present. It's a basic principle. If you want God to bless you in something, you put Him first. If you want God to bless your place of work, you put Him first in your work. If you want God to bless a particular relationship, you put Him first in your relationship. And if you want God to bless your finances 
And I imagine every single one of us would love God to bless us in our finances. It's not a wrong thing to hope for. Then put him first in your finances. Deuteronomy 14, 23 says this, the purpose of tithing, that's when you give 10% of your income, is to teach you always to put God first in your lives. So when we give, it's a way of saying, God, I'm so grateful for what you've done in the past, but Lord, I wanna put you first now. I wanna build my security, my identity, my life on you, not in my money. And then the third thing is, when we give, it's a way of trusting God for the future. So much anxiety happens when it comes to money, probably more than any other topic, because we find so much trust and security in our money and our finances. And that's understandable, that's very natural. But when we give, it's a way of saying, God, I actually trust you that you'll provide, that you're never gonna let me down. And we've seen all around us how how things move so fast. We put our hope in a relationship, our health or our career or our money, but all of these things can fade away, can fall apart so fast. But when we trust and when we give, we're putting our roots down in a firm foundation that will never fail, will never forsake us, will never ever pass away. And when we give spiritually, it's a way of building a future on Christ. But also, Jesus says when we give, something extraordinary happens, something almost mystical that when we give here on earth, that becomes riches for us to enjoy in heaven. It's an investment into eternity. Jesus says in Matthew 6, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. We can't take our riches our cars, our Xboxes, our houses, our jewelry. We can't take it into heaven with us. But when we give as an offering of worship, when we invest in the church we're a part of, when we give to bless others, we send it ahead of ourselves. And when we spend eternity with Christ, we'll get to enjoy it. We'll get to know the blessing and the life of knowing that Our giving here on earth has blessed us for eternity. It's the most liberating way to live. But of course, it's a challenging way to live. And I recognize sharing on generosity and giving at a time of real unpredictability, real tension, a cost of living crisis is hard. And this isn't in any way me trying to pressurize you. This is a thing I'm inviting you to prayerfully consider before Jesus. And if you leave here this morning feeling pressured or guilty, then I've done a really bad job. The reason we want to talk about this is because this is a discipleship issue. This is a worship issue, actually. And Jesus talks a huge amount around giving and money, not because he wants to fund church ministry. It's not like 2,000 years ago, he was imagining, you know, all the merchandise possibilities, you know, the Jesus hoodies. No, he wants us to be free. He wants us to trust him. 
And he knows that there is a battle going on between our affections for him and our love for money. And it's when we put him first that we experience joy and freedom. The evangelist Billy Graham once said, if a person gets their attitude toward money straight, it will help straighten out almost every other area of their life. God wants us to be a part of this adventurous kingdom activity and a pathway to it is through generosity. But just two quick asides. One firstly is I'm aware that there are probably a number sitting here where you might be in real financial difficulty. Maybe you're in debt or maybe you feel like your finances have spiraled out of control. And I want to say there is no shame in that. And I want to say, please don't suffer in silence. Reach out. We'd love to help you. We have an amazing Christians Against Poverty Center where we're working with people in debt to help them get debt free. And every so often we get a testimony come in saying of someone that they are now debt free and we can rejoice with them. So if you're here today and you feel overwhelmed and in a bit of a state, please don't stay silent. Reach out because there is hope. But the second thing is this, that there are a number here, probably many of us, who naturally are feeling anxious. You know, I, I've experienced, and Rachel and I have experienced over the last few months, probably more anxiety around money than we have for a long time. It's natural for many of us, mortgages going up, cost of living going up. <clears throat> but I believe this is an invitation, it's a moment for us, rather than to get caught up in worry, to lean deeper into Jesus. And my prayer is, God, how might my giving help me grow in my trust in you? Deepen my sense of security that you are in control. This is a moment for all of us to take another step forward as disciples, as followers of Jesus Christ. And so as we spend a few weeks just reflecting and encouraging everyone to prayerfully consider what their giving might look like, I want to suggest some next steps that each and every one of us might want to consider taking. And the first is this. You might be here. You might have come to church for a little while, but you've never really given to the church. You've never really been a part of giving. And your next step might be this, to become a first-time giver. You might want to give a one-off gift to all that we're doing here as a church as a way of almost dipping your toe in the water, learning in a small way to begin to trust God with our riches and our finances. That might be your next step. For others though, your next step might be become, to, be become, um, to become a regular giver. You may be here and you occasionally give, sort of sporadically, randomly as it comes in. But your next step might be to become a regular giver. The, the early church, we see that they would often give a proportion of their income, but they'd do it regularly. And for Rachel and I, for as long as we've been married, we've always, the first piece of money that comes out of our account at the start of each month is our giving to the church that we've been a part of. And the reason we've, we've set up a regular standing order is because we want our giving to our, be in, intentional. We want our discipleship and our worship to be intentional, not just emotionally led. And it's a way of giving our first and our best to the life of the church and the community we're a part of. And for some of you here, that might be your next step to start giving 
regularly a proportion of your income. In our church, we have 386 people who regularly give. Now, that, that might be couples or families, but 386 regular giving units, which makes up about 85,000 pounds a month, which is an amazing way of helping us, contributing towards a bunch of the ministry and life uh, of all that God is doing in our church. But over the next few weeks, we'd love to believe that number could increase. We have about 1,500 adults connected with our church across all three locations. And so that makes me think that there's more giving in our congregation. Maybe you're new here and you haven't set up a standing order. Maybe you've been wondering what you should do or you've been in between jobs and you kind of haven't quite got around to it. Maybe if you're part of this community and you want to go on this adventure of seeing a sovereign move of God, maybe your next step is to start giving regularly. Next step after that could be you become a tither. Tithing is mentioned is when we give 10% of our income. It's this biblical principle. And having spent a lot of time studying a lot of scriptures around giving, being around churches, different churches for many years, my conclusion, and this is for you guys to prayerfully consider, is that if you are a committed Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then I think tithing is the way you should live. Now, some argue that it's an Old Testament principle, that you know, the people of the Old Testament, they would tithe, they give 10% of their crops, their products, their income. And when Jesus came, he fulfilled the old law and he's released us into a new covenant. And so we're now free. We're free from any of those regulations, free from any of those laws, and we're released to do and be who we want to be. And yes, Jesus did all that. He fulfilled the old law. But what we see in Jesus is he released in his people a desire to give above and beyond, to be cheerful givers. In fact, Jesus and the early church, as we've seen already, gave way above a tithe. They considered everything God's. And it seems to me if the people of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, before the life of Christ were willing to give 10%, then we, as the people who have seen the face and the love of God in Jesus Christ, have seen the mercy and the depths of sacrificial love where Jesus was crucified on a cross, His blood was shed for you and I. Why or how could we consider giving less? If I went to Rach and said, Rach, we've been married nearly 20 years now. Just tell me, how little can I give you in this marriage for you to be okay? How little can I give of my time, of my affections, my resources, my energies, my heart? How little can I give and you be okay? Now she might say, well, you're pretty much there already. I hope not. <laughs> but rightly, if you said that to your partner, they would kill you because that's not the sound of love. That's the sound of a contract. Pastor Rich Nathan says this, when we start thinking about the minimum we can get by with, we've moved outside of the realm of relationships. We've moved outside of the realm of love. We're now in an entirely different realm, the realm of grudging obligation and legalistic counting. That's why it's so important that no one gives because they feel pressured. Because if you do that, you, you've missed the point. And that's why we want you to go away and prayerfully consider it because this is a spirit thing. This is a relational worship thing, not a duty 
But for me, when I was a student, I had very little money. I began this principle of tithing. And it's something I've done all my life. And actually, as God has blessed us with more, it's been a joy to be able to give more. But I'm so glad at a young age, I put in place these principles that I've been, that I believe have been significant and helpful for me in my walk as a follower of Christ. So for some, maybe your next step is to think about tithing. And we've got these giving envelopes. When you leave the, at the door, you can grab one and maybe just take it home and think and pray about what your next step might be. Or you can go to the website, gastreet.church and find out all the ways you can give. And then the final thing is this, we draw to a close with this, is for some of you, you're already tithing. But there are some people in our community, I believe, who God is calling to be extravagant givers. It's when they give way above 10%. Now, I'm aware for some of you here, giving 10% of your income, actually, it's not that sacrificial. For others, and probably for the vast majority, even contemplating giving 10% is like radical, unprecedented generosity. It's like crazy. But for some and a few, 10% is, you could do that and not really miss it. But I wonder if the call, the invitation is for you to give, again, above and beyond. And when you study moves of God, I've just read this book around revivals and moves of God, you see two things. Firstly, these moves of God saw radical sacrificial generosity amongst the many, but then a few wealthy individuals who were able to massively back and give to release kingdom activity. They're often known as gospel patrons. And I believe God is wanting to raise up in our church a few gospel patrons. I'm praying, believing that God is going to send to our church a few gospel patrons who can really fast track and extend the ministry we have and the desire we have to reach this city with the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the 1500s, William Tyndale sought to see the Bible translated from Latin into English. And it was a huge, huge vision and undertaking. At this time, uh, the Bible had been in Latin for over a thousand years. It was actually um, prohibited by law for anyone to translate in any other language. And in every church, it would be the priests who would read the Bibles and preach on the Bibles in Latin. So you imagine everyone turns up to church, very few could speak Latin. It made no sense. They didn't understand it. It also meant that the church could control and influence the message. There's huge amounts of corruption and confusion. But William Tyndale had this vision to see the Word of God placed in the hands of all people in England. But this vision would have come to nothing were it not for a businessman called Henry Monmouth. Henry Monmouth on meeting Tyndale just was transfixed by this vision. And he said, I'm going to back you. He opened up his home and he created space for Tyndale to begin to work on translating the Bible from Greek and Hebrew into English. He, he provided for all his costs. And then in time, he began to provide for all his travel costs, all the printing costs of these Bibles. He put so much money and resourcing into this vision to see the Bible translated into English. And as these translated Bibles began to be circulated illegally at first around England, it lit a fuse that led to the English Reformation. 
this amazing revival move of God where the church in England began to separate for some of the corruption of Rome. And eventually Tyndale was arrested in 1536, but something had been ignited that changed the course of history. 70 years after Tyndale's death, the King of England at the time, King James, authorised an updated English translation of the Bible called the King James Version. And this version relied heavily on William Tyndale's translation. And the King James Version of the Bible was to become the most influential English book in the history of the world. And today there are more than 600 million English speakers who've directly benefited from Tyndale's work. An incredible move of God that we have all personally benefited from today, being able to read the Bible in the language that we understand. But none of this would have been possible. None of this would have been possible without Henry Monmouth. And there are people in our church, you've got money and resources. And I believe God is going to begin to bless you with extraordinary amounts of money and resources. And you could use it to buy a nice holiday house in Bournemouth or maybe Tenerife. Or you could pour it into the kingdom of God to see a great awakening that we desperately need. My prayer is that God would begin to lead us into unprecedented generosity. And for some of us, it's going to be, most of us, it's going to be sacrificial giving. And the danger is we think, well, I can only give a little bit. It won't make any difference. You know, it might be you can only give five pounds a month. And you think five pounds, that can barely buy me a Big Mac meal now. You know, venti, coffee, syrupy, latte from Starbucks. And in your hands, five pounds can actually buy very, very little. But when you give, you place your five pounds into the hands of the Lord God Almighty who can multiply and can use your giving to see redemption and transformation and salvation, to see people who are enslaved in addiction, being set free, young people who are lost and going nowhere, given vision and purpose. God can do that if you're willing just to give a little bit. Maybe that's your next step, but for others, maybe for a few, is that God would release wild, lavish, crazy amounts of giving that can see us reach this city with the love of Jesus Christ. Amen. Why don't we stand and we're going to move quickly into communion where we again consider the radical love of Jesus Christ. But I want to pray as we do that. Maybe Aaron, you could just play over us. Lord Jesus, as we've been singing, you're holy, you are worthy of it all. You're all deserving, you're all glorious, you're beautiful. We're so enamored by you. But Lord, we don't want our worship and our adoration just to be words, just to be emotions on a Sunday, Lord. We, we want our worship to be earth in the hard reality of life. And Lord, I pray that each of us heads off and sits before you considers what you might be calling us to do, whether it's to begin giving or increase our giving or find other ways of giving and serving. Lord, I pray that your spirit would unlock it. Lord, I pray against any sense of 
obligation or pressure. Lord, I'm so sorry for where the church has been so abusive around money, where manipulation has been used to coerce people to give. Lord, I pray that you'd smash through any of that. May this be your spirit, beautifully, tenderly, intimately speaking to us and teaching us and leading us. Lord, we long that this might be a hinge moment where we see your kingdom come. Lord, we look around and we see so much confusion, so many people lost. Lord, where we see more and more people just holding anger towards the view of the church. Lord, I pray that in these days you might pour out your Spirit like you did at Antioch, that we might see salvation and conversions, that we might see a diverse community being formed and shaped together in your image, and that we might see a release of unprecedented generosity. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out. If you want to find out more, visit our website, gastric.org, or follow us on Instagram at Gastric Church.